This is my friend Devin. Good morning. Good morning. And um, next week, you will have a new name. Grandpa Tar. Grandpa Tar, which yeah. is hard to believe. I told him, I don't know that I could get on board with calling you Grandpa Tar yet. Actually, I could call you Grandpa Tar, but I don't know that I could call Stephanie Grandma Tar. Yeah. But um, tell us, how are you going to be a grandpa? Uh, so, um, Stephanie, my wife, has four kids. Her oldest, Marcus, uh, got married a year ago, and he and his wife got pregnant very quickly. And so she is due uh, August 4th, which is actually my wife and I's anniversary, which is kind of fun. That would be the best gift. I know. So uh, I'll be a grandpa at 36, which is exciting. <laughs> Dude. So Devin comes to us with wisdom from old age as a grandpa. Yes, yes. But Lord bless Devin as he shares this morning. Thank you for his heart that seeks to abide in you and bring the truth. And so as he shares this morning, Lord, would you capture our attention with just the things that will bring freedom today, bring hope, um, cause us to fall more in love with you, Jesus. In your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm doing a pretty light topic today. Um, where is God, uh, evil, suffering, and glory? So, um, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot to say there. Just kidding. Um, you know, I got a, a Facebook message some weeks ago from the daughter of a pastor uh, that I know. And she's at an interesting faith walk. Um, and she shared that she recently uh, had given birth. And in that experience, felt as though, oh my gosh, I think maybe God exists. And she had a lot of questions. Um, and she, she reached out to me and said, hey, can we get together I, you know, I'm, I'm really taking seriously this question of does God exist, but I'm really struggling with the claim that he's all good and all powerful and all knowing when there is so much suffering and evil going on in the world. And she's not the only one, I think, that has asked that question. And it's a really fair question to ask. So today, we're going to look at three big questions. We're going to start with these, and then actually we're going to come back to these at the end. Uh, but those three questions are, if God is real and he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then why does he permit so much evil and suffering in this world? If he's all-powerful, then he could do something about it. If he's all-knowing, then he knows all about it. And if he's all-good, wouldn't he want to do something about it? So why is all of this evil and suffering allowed to persist? Secondly, and this begins to get into our lives much more personally, you know, that first question is broadly an intellectual one. In my experience, though, most people don't struggle as much with the first question. Most people struggle with the second two, which is, where was God when fill-in-the-blank happened? And everybody has moments in their life where that fill-in-the-blank is so awful, whether it's losing a child, 
Um, whether it's some monumentally horrific event like the Holocaust, you know, all of us have, I think, gone through moments in our lives that are so painful, that are so awful, that it's hard to believe that God is good and that He loves us and that He cares, and yet watched as we went through this, seemingly doing nothing about it. Third, and again, uh, more personally, for a lot of us, we might ask, well, um, okay, I'm going through fill in the blank right now, and I don't feel him, and I don't see him, and does he not see me? Does he not care? Does he not notice that my family is being torn apart? Does he not notice that I'm losing everything that I cared about? If he really does love me, where is he? All three of these questions are fair to ask. They are healthy questions. They are good questions. I get annoyed when I've heard people tell me that they've asked other Christians these questions, and the answer that they've gotten back is, I don't know, but we just have to have faith. I think that when people say that, they're well-meaning, and they're, they're, they're keyed into the fact that they've experienced the goodness of God in their lives. And so even though they don't know how to process these difficult questions, the goodness of God is so great in their lives that it overwhelms those questions for them. But what about the person who hasn't had that experience of God being that good, and they're faced with those questions? How can we help them? How can we speak to those people? So, in order to begin to answer those questions, we have to first look at four things. Number one, what is this world? <laughs> what was God's plan in making it? I mean, given how uh, many problems there are, you know, why did he create this? What was the point all along? Secondly, if, if he did have a good reason for creating it, then why is it so messed up? What happened? Third, okay, okay, so it's messed up, but what is God doing about it? Doesn't he see that if his plan was A and yet B happened, shouldn't he step in and fix this? Why does he allow this brokenness to continue? Why does he allow all of us to suffer and go through so many challenging experiences? And number four, how can I see him begin to work in my life? You know, those three questions are nice on an intellectual level, but but I'm going through fill-in-the-blank right now, and I need him. Where is he? How can I experience him when I need him the most? So like I said, you know, not a heavy message at all, really light and easy and, you know, a great, happy way to start the day. My hope, though, God, would this be the case? My hope is that by the end of this brief talk, you will actually have fallen in love with God because He is so good. And I promise you, there are good answers to those questions. So, number one, let's start at the beginning. 
What was God's plan when he made this world? Well, in the very first chapter of the Bible, it says the following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to pull out a few things from this opening chapter of the Bible. When God made all of creation and he made humanity, we humans who have now experienced so much pain, what was the original plan? What was the original intent? Well, he, number one, he blessed us, it says. So his intent for us is one of goodness. It is one of blessing. He did not create us in order to to harm us. Number two, it says that he made us in his image. Now, for a lot of people, they think that that means just that he, he, he made us to have certain abilities that the rest of creation doesn't have. Things like uh, sentience and moral reasoning and uh, rational thought. But being made in God's image actually means a lot more than that. In the ancient world, when kings would erect an image of themselves, they would do it to designate my rule, my kingdom, my authority reigns here. So if you were a conquering king and you went into another country and you wanted to demonstrate this country now belongs to me, my rule, my authority is what is in charge here, you would erect images of yourself. And that was a declaration to all that country of whose reign was there. So when scripture says that God made humanity in his image, what it means is that God intended from the very beginning for humans to rule on the earth as he himself would, to reflect to all creation the goodness of God, to extend the kingdom of God over all of the earth so that all of the earth would be like the Garden of Eden. You see, God's intent from the very beginning was for heaven to dwell on the earth, for this earth to be a paradise, where humans were ruling with the authority of God. I can show this in a few other ways as well. One of the other beautiful things about God's plan for this world was not just that humans would be reigning on it and and extending Eden over all creation, but God's desire from the very beginning has always been to dwell with mankind. God's desire has been to be with us, for heaven and earth to be united, overlapping realms. Again, in Genesis, in the very beginning of the Bible, where does it say God is? In Genesis 3.8, it says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You see, when God initially created this world, he didn't put humans on the earth and then stay aloof in some other realm. 
No, when God created this world, he was dwelling with humanity and we were together. That was the plan in the beginning and that has always been his plan and remains his plan to this day. I can show this as well. It's in the Old Testament. When, when God called the people Israel, what did he say to them after giving them the Ten Commandments? In Exodus 25, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. Again, God does not want to be remote. God's desire has always been to be with you, to be with us. And finally, God demonstrated this in the most monumental way when he sent Jesus. Matthew says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, even after this world became broken, still came into this broken world through his son, fulfilling that initial dream, that initial vision of dwelling with us forever. And here's the beautiful thing. Even though the world is so messed up right now, that is still what the plan is going to look like in the end. I've shown you in the very first chapter of the Bible what God's intent was to dwell with us. How about the very last chapter of the Bible? Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. There will be a day when heaven itself is on earth. And there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more crying. The kingdom of heaven will be over all of creation. That is in our future. That will happen. And so the question is, is that where you want to be? Do you want to be someone who is a part of the kingdom of God? Or is that not really what you want out of life? You'll get to pick. You can choose whether you want your life to be in the kingdom of God or not. And this connects to the second big question. Why is the world not good? In very brief words, the answer is free will. You see, when God made this world, he didn't make us to be puppets. He's not a marionette just pulling strings. God actually cares about the desires of your heart. God cares about the choices that you make. And you have the beautiful privilege and decision of getting to either say, you know what? I want God's vision for the earth. I, I, I want to see heaven and earth united as one. I want to see all of the earth looking like love and justice and righteousness and peace and joy. Or you can say, you know what I want? 
I want what I want. And, you know, I'm here and I want to be happy. I want to do what I enjoy. And, you know, God, thank you for making all of this. Appreciate it, but, uh, but I'll take it from here. And here's the thing is that um, as much as we all might want to say, oh, yes, I want the kingdom of God. The fact is that none of us live that way. All of us choose ourselves over God. We've done it in the past. We still do it today. And it is something that we still have to be continuing to work on in the future. And when we choose ourselves over the kingdom of God, this breaks the world. You see it in relationships. If you have two people who are in a relationship and both of them are selfish, that relationship begins to break. Not because either of them were trying to break the relationship. It's just what happens. When we live for ourselves, our lives begin to break. But here's the other really remarkable thing. When we live for ourselves, we don't just begin to break our own lives. We begin to break all the life of those around us because we are all connected to each other. Every single person in this room, you and I are connected more deeply than you know. I uh, was um, in an antique store with my mom yesterday. My mom loves antiquing. God bless her. Love you, mom. Um, Not my favorite thing, but putting mom first, right? It's the kingdom of God. Well, as we were walking through the antique store, I picked up a book by Ernest Hemingway called For Whom the Bell Tolls. I had heard of this book before, but I'd never read it. You know, I, I, I didn't really know what the plot was, and I opened it up. And on the very first page, Ernest Hemingway included a poem from an English poet by the name of John Donne. And this poem reads as the following. No man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were. As well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. You see, John Donne was connected to this idea of how connected we all are with one another. This is why our choices matter so much. This is why how we live our lives matters so much. Because it doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us. I didn't expect to get so emotional. Sorry. Now here's one of the other really remarkable things. When we think about why the world is so broken, 
It's not only the choices that humans have made. Now, I'm going to begin to share some things that might strike you as a little odd if you've never run into this before. Um, I have talked with Andrew extensively about this. I have his blessing. He agrees. I'm not going off into heresy. I promise I can justify things that I'm going to share if some of this is new to you. Um, Dave knows where I'm going with some of this. When we think about why there's so much evil and suffering in the world, we have to ask, well, it's not just all the decisions that humans have made. You know, there's a lot of natural evil in the world. You know, there's tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, famines, tons of natural disasters that inflict great suffering and harm. And there are, I think, different explanations for that. Um, There's more than one right answer, I guess, is what I'm trying to say there. But one of the things that has also occurred in our world is that when God made creation and gave humans free will, we were not the only beings that he gave free will to. When God made the angels, he gave the angels free will as well. And angelic beings, spiritual beings, are immensely powerful, and they can actually interact in the world. If you read in the gospel account, in the gospel of Matthew, in the resurrection narrative, it says, an angel came down from heaven, spoke to the women who were at the tomb there, but it says really something interesting. It says, when the angel came down from heaven, it caused a great earthquake, Angelic beings, spiritual beings, can have physical effects on the world, including things like earthquakes. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus was going around healing, there were times when Jesus healed a sickness that it was just a sickness. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and Jesus healed her. There was nothing more to it than that. But there were many times when people were struggling with physical ailments in their bodies, where the cause of that sickness was spiritual. So spiritual beings can actually have physical effects on the world. That's my point. Now, when did this rebellion occur? Well, the first, you know, people might think, oh, Genesis 3, the serpent in the garden was in rebellion with God. Yes, that's correct. But there was two other rebellion moments, and I'm only going to speak to one of them, and it was in Genesis 6. We read the following. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the B'nai Elohim, which in Hebrew means sons of God, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that phrase, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, is a very significant phrase. We see it in Scripture, actually, in a number of different passages throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Psalm 82. You see it in Psalm 89. You see it in Deuteronomy 32. You see it in Job. You see it throughout the Old Testament. And every time what it's referring to 
is spiritual beings that were part of God's heavenly creation. You can call them angels if you want. But there's a phrase that Psalm 82 uses where uh, the phrase is the divine counsel. You see, when God made the world, he made heavens and earth, and he made humans to reign in earth. God made spiritual beings in heaven, a divine counsel, as it were, that he was interacting with after he created them. And there were members of that divine council who in Genesis 6, early on in creation, rebelled against God. They left their domain in heaven. They came down to earth. They joined themselves with humans. And after they did so, they began to teach humans actually great evil There are other places where Scripture gets into this, um, and there are extra-biblical sources that get into this. But the point is that immediately after these sons of God came to earth, suddenly great evil began to multiply upon the whole earth. And God did respond to that evil, right? I opened this little talk by saying one of the things that we cry out for when great suffering and injustice is being done to us, is where are you, God? Why don't you act? Why don't you do something about this? And we see in the very beginning of the Bible, what does God do when evil is so prevalent in the earth? He acts and he eliminates it. (laughs) I mean, in a massive way right? He he says, I'm going to wash away all of this evil. And he sends the flood. You see, God does respond to evil. God does act and does not take suffering and evil lightly. Now, let me show you one other passage. Let me read Psalm 82 very briefly. And you can see that these angelic beings were given a similar mission as humans to extend the kingdom of God in the domain in which they were set. And those angels, just like men, did not fulfill their calling. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. B'nai El Elyon in Hebrew there. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And the Old Testament is not the only place where it says that part of the suffering and part of the evil that is going on in the world is actually a result of this spiritual rebellion in the heavenly realms. Paul says the same thing in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So you see here, I genuinely believe that there have been times in the world where someone is committing a great evil. And it is not just themselves that is responsible for that evil act. Uh, My wife loves watching true crime stuff on Netflix. I don't know if anyone else here is into the true crime craze. But um, so often when you are watching these documentaries about these terrible things that people have done, who who are acting in a way that is so wicked and causing so much suffering that you're going, oh my gosh, did that really come just out of your own mind? And you talk to them and they say, no, I felt a spirit in me. I felt a voice talking to me that was moving me and calling me to do this and this and this. And I think they're telling the truth. I don't think they're just schizophrenic. I mean, spiritual beings really do exist. And so when, when we encounter and experience others who are doing harm to us, sometimes it's just coming from their own selfishness and they're putting themselves before us. Sometimes, though, there are spiritual forces at work that are maneuvering and manipulating people around us to act in ways that are bringing suffering and harm. And again, this is why Paul says later on in the book of Ephesians that our battle as humans on the earth is not just against flesh and blood. Our battle is against powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. So to summarize this question, why is the world not good? Well, It is because God gave us a gift of great power. I'm reminded of Spider-Man now. My daughter loves Spider-Man. And with great power comes great responsibility, right? But what happens when you misuse that power? Well, you cause great harm. And God was gracious enough and loving enough to give us his image, to give us free will, and he gave that to the heavenly host. And we've all misused that power. And we are the ones that have broken and corrupted the world. So does God care? Does he act? Well, yeah, we, we saw his action right off the get-go. He washed all that evil away. Is that what you want him to do again? <laughs> I hope not. I mean, we're all in trouble. You know, that's why we're very grateful for the rainbow, right? Which was sort of the the rainbow colors on the first slide where God said, look, I'm going to now deal with evil another way, a better way, a more long-lasting way. Where is God? Does he care? I already said, you know, well, first he did the flood. Very thankful that he promised not to do that again. And if you want to shake your fist at God and go, God, why don't you act? Then you have to ask yourself, are are you asking him to send another flood? Is that really what you want? Or would your calling out and crying out to God be for him to maybe act in another way? And I'm thankful to tell you that he has acted in another way. 
You see, we broke this world and he didn't leave it to its own devices. He himself said, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm imagining like if you gave your, your child some sort of amazing toy and, you know, your child just breaks the toy, you know, you could respond to be like, well, you broke it. That was on you. That wasn't my fault, you know, or you could step in and go, okay, I know you broke it. You don't deserve to have this fixed but I'm, I'm going to come in now and begin fixing this. And that is exactly what God has done in our world today. And what he is doing today, he has stepped into our world and has begun fixing it and begun renewing it and is going to continue that fixing and renewing process to where finally at the end of the story, this world will be heaven on earth. And you can be there if that's what you desire. The main way he entered in and began fixing it was through his son, through Jesus. Jesus is God himself. And what did he do when he came? Well, there's this wonderful verse in the book of Acts that is such a beautiful one-verse summary of kind of the whole life of Christ. Acts chapter 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. You know, I think a lot of us as Christians, especially in America, as evangelicals in our movement, when we think, what, what did God do in Jesus? What, what did he come to do? Um, we think that the whole point was just that he came to die and to forgive us of our sins. I mean, that's, that's what we talk about. That's what we generally say the gospel is. God loves you. You sinned. Now you need to be forgiven. Jesus died for your sins. So trust in him and you can be forgiven and, you know, beamed out to heaven the end. But you see, the gospel is so much richer than that. That's not false. That's all true. But the good news of God's love for the world is so far beyond just a sin management system. You see, God actually cares about this world, has never stopped caring about this world. And when he came, he came and he began healing all diseases. He began delivering people from oppression. He began preaching good news to people. He began saying the kingdom of God has come and is now restoring all of creation because I have not given up on this world. I am more powerful than this world and I am going to heal and restore and make this world the Eden that it always was meant to be. And even if humans have messed it up, I I am greater and I am going to restore all things because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom of heaven is here. God cares so much about the world and we do suffer. 
But I promise you he cares and he has acted and he is acting to heal and restore this world. And he sees what you are going through, whatever it is. But look at Jesus. He does care. Now, I think someone could ask, wow, great preaching, you know, that was so exciting. But where is he now? Like, that was great for all those people 2,000 years ago. That was great for the blind person who wanted to see and received his sight. But where's my healing? Where is he in my circumstance? I'm addicted to XYZ and can't get free. I'm watching my child be addicted to XYZ and not get free. I just lost my job and might lose my house. Whatever it is. Where is he now? Where is this kingdom you speak of? Fair question. Fair question. You see, this is another thing that I think that the church needs to awaken to, especially the church in America. We often think that the kingdom of God, again, is just about giving your life to Jesus and getting saved and going to heaven. But if that was all that it was about, then why doesn't God just beam us up? You know, you got saved, you did it, you accomplished the mission. That's not what he does. Why are we still here? We're still here because Jesus is now, when he went to heaven and ascended after being raised from the dead, he said, my disciples, my followers are going to literally be now my hands and feet on the earth. When Jesus went to somebody and he touched them and he healed them and they received their sight, he reached out his hand and a miracle occurred. Where is Jesus's hand now? It's right here. If you hold up your hands, it's right there. We are the body of Jesus. Where is Jesus right now? He is in heaven and he is on earth. He is on earth in you and through you. The church is now the, the means, one of the core means that God himself is continuing this extension of the kingdom on earth. If you got excited about what Jesus came to do when I was saying everything that he did, then let's be as excited. I don't have a little, little preaching vignette for this, right? But we ought to be as excited about what we are here to do. You have a purpose. You have a calling. You have a mission that is so much more than I'm going to buy a house and retire comfortably and, you know, um, uh, just live a safe and comfortable life. That's not what we're here to do. We are here as the, as the people of God to, to extend the kingdom of heaven over all creation, you know, I saw a movie uh, a couple weeks ago called The Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to please go see it. It tells the true story of a man named Tim Ballard who worked for the Department of Homeland Security. And through the course of his job, he began seeing the horror and evil of child trafficking. 
And he ended up selling his house, quitting his job, and giving everything he had to go rescue kids from human trafficking. That is the kingdom of God at work. Where is God? What what is God doing about all of the suffering and all of the evil in the world? What are we doing about it? We are the people that are called to do something about it. Are we doing anything? Let's repent if, we are, if we're not. And let's begin to ask God, God, how have you called me to begin to extend your kingdom on the earth? I don't want to just live for the American dream. I want to live for God's dream. I don't want to live for the American kingdom. I want to live for heaven's kingdom. So God, change my heart and my mind. Make me more loyal to you than I am to anything else. And what would you have me do to build and extend your kingdom? We are called to so much more than evangelism. Yes, evangelism is so needed because every person that you can share the gospel message with becomes another member of the body of Christ. And so the body gets stronger and the body gets getting bigger and stronger is absolutely one of the core things we should be doing. But what is the body doing with its strength? The goal isn't just to be a big body. The body needs to be used. So let's do both, guys. Okay, now, last thing here, and I'm so sorry, I'm like six minutes over, and this is now my main point that I'm about to get to, so I'll try to go quickly. The last thing, though. Devin, that's great. That's my mission, that's my calling. But I can't do that right now. You don't know where I am right now. And I'm maybe not even part of this kingdom thing. I'm not ready to go on mission. I need a hospital. I'm broken. Where is my healing? And you might already be, you know, a follower of Jesus. And yet I share this dream about moving powerfully for the kingdom. And you go, I can hardly get my bills paid. I can hardly just keep myself together. How am I supposed to help others when I am struggling to stay afloat myself? Good questions. Fair questions. I've been there loads of times. And you know, the answer is actually a simple one, and it's in plain sight. And sometimes the things in plain sight are the easiest to miss. You know, there's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes when you're so familiar with something, it's really easy to take it for granted. It's really easy to overlook it. God cares greatly about whatever you're going through right now. And he can fill you with more power and life than you can possibly imagine. But there's only one way to get the healing that you're looking for. There's only one way to be made alive again. And it's a simple thing. It's abiding in him. It's John 15. 
John 15 is actually the key that makes this entire message run. It's the gasoline for the whole car, right? If, if the whole message was a car. Without the gas, the car's not going anywhere. You have to have the gas. What does John 15 say? Beautifully, I love that it says this, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Are you struggling with guilt, condemnation? Devin, I thought I could be used for the kingdom before, but that was before I was a Christian, and then I sinned again and again and again and again. And now that I know better, and I've still fallen off the wagon, there's, you know, how is there still mercy for me? I knew better this time. What does Jesus say? Already you are clean. Present tense. Not will be. You are clean. His blood is just as powerful for you today as it was the day you first met him. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. We sang that in worship today. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in Christ, the very life of Christ, the very life of God will fill your soul. And I'm going to skip my next slide, but just briefly relay some of the core ideas of what it says. When you are abiding in Christ, when you are connected to Him, that does not mean that you will escape from suffering. There is no escape from suffering in this world. Jesus said, In this world, you will suffer. He said that you are not of this world, and so the world will persecute you because you are apart from this world. So how do we deal with our own suffering? How do we deal with the own, you know, evil that we experience? There is no escape from suffering. There is no escape from evil. If you're outside of the kingdom of heaven, you will suffer. If you are in the kingdom of heaven, you will suffer. So the question is not, you know, how do I not suffer? The question is, how do I overcome my suffering so that this suffering is now something small, something easy to deal with and pale in comparison to what I have? When you're outside of the kingdom of heaven, you can be very comfortable on the outside. You can minimize your suffering to a great extent, and that's what we call comfort. You can live your life for wealth and for building a nice home and, and uh, you know, eating great food and, and not denying yourself anything that you desire. You can have all of that, but you won't escape from suffering. No matter how much your flesh may feel comfortable and cozy, you are not just your flesh. You have a spirit. 
And if you live your whole life for your flesh, your spirit will wilt and will die. Your inner self will suffer. Or you can live for the flip side and go, you know what? When I think about who I really am, am I just my flesh and nothing more than that? Or is the very core of who I am deeper than just my body? The answer is yes, it is. And if you live for the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't mean your flesh won't suffer. It doesn't mean that you won't have challenges. But what it does mean is if you are abiding in Christ, your spirit will be alive to such an extent that the suffering that you experience out here and even in here in your mind will be nothing compared to the life of God that is so rich in you that it is overflowing beyond your imagining. And as I say that, you might say, that's a nice theory, but like, how do I do that? I was uh, speaking with, and and I, I promise I'm almost done. You guys are so patient. I was speaking with um, my friend Abuna. You guys might know Marion and Abuna. And I was really struggling um, a few uh, weeks ago, you know, a month ago or so. And um, this message is largely what has evolved from the core of what I took away from that conversation. He shared this image with me. He said, Devin, imagine that you are in a boat, okay? And there are, you know, it's, you're in a storm. There's waves all over the place. And you're in this boat, and some people in this boat are looking forward. They're looking out to try and navigate and maneuver all of the storms and the waves. And they've got an oar, and they are freaking out. Because no matter how much they're trying to maneuver the oar or get ready or situate themselves, there's no final solution to dealing with the storm. And so they just find themselves in a constant state of anxiety, looking out at all of the problems, at all of the issues going on in their life. There are other people in the boat, though, who instead of facing forward at everything coming at them, they're turned around. And in the back of the boat is the captain, is Jesus. And Jesus knows how to navigate the storm. Jesus knows what he's doing. And for those people in the boat who have their eyes fixed on Jesus, even though they are in the same storm and experiencing the same waves, they are at peace because they're looking at their captain and they know his power. And they know that he is greater than this storm. And so you have two people in the same boat, in the same storm, experiencing the same kind of suffering. And yet some are at total peace and some wrestle with nothing but anxiety. And I said to Abuna, you know, Abuna, I feel like I'm someone in the boat. I'm, I'm usually looking forward, but I know Jesus is in the boat. And so, you know, I'm like freaking out. But every so often I'll look back and be like, oh, okay, okay, Jesus is still there. Okay, I'm good, I'm good. Oh, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And he said, you know, that's pretty common. That's what a lot of Christians do. But the answer is to just turn around. And it's so simple, which is why we miss it so much. 
It's to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Are you abiding in his word? Are you listening to worship and being in his word more than you're involved in news or working on all the things of this world? Where do you spend your time? Is your time spent fixing your eyes on him? If you do, from your heart, rivers of living water will flow out of you. I'm going to close with my last three questions. If God is real and he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then why does he permit so much evil and suffering in the world? Because he has given free will to those who bear his image, and they have used that gift and power to reject God's vision and live for themselves. That's why. Where was he when fill-in-the-blank happened? He was there. He saw and he wept. And he will heal you and use you to heal others. He will use the suffering you've gone through to continue his mission and eliminate suffering and evil from the world. He will make you an agent that then eliminates that in the future because you know it and you understand it. Number three, where is he now? I'm going through fill in the blank. He's right beside you. He has not left you. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've gone through. He has not left you. And if you will give yourself to him and abide in him, if you will pursue him with desperation, he will resurrect your life both now and forever. Your outward body may face pain, but your inward self will have life beyond imagination. You know, as I've shared today, I think there may be some people here who have never really given their lives to God. I talked about at the very beginning God's vision for this world is to make the whole world a paradise for heaven and earth to be united together, for the kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom of love and justice and righteousness and peace and joy, to be the common experience of of all the world. But most of us, all of us, really, when we're born, that's not what our heart is hungering for. How many kids do you know who say, I just want the kingdom of God? <laughs> no. Kids, you know, they, right? All of us, we're all born selfish. We're all, we, we're born and, and we're out for ourselves. And until we make that change, until we say, I no longer I'm going to live my life for myself. I'm now going to give my life to God. I'm going to live to see the kingdom of heaven built on the earth. When you do that, when you give your life to Jesus, the very life of God will fill you. You will feel so different. All of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame will vanish. All the guilt that you feel, every, everything that you've done that torments you, gone in a moment. I can't describe the feeling. 
I can't, I can't explain. It's like trying to describe color to someone who's colorblind or only sees in black and white. Colorblind people can still see color. But uh, it changes everything. And as I've spoken today, if God has been pulling on your heart, if you have been feeling this tug of going, I have been living for myself. I've never really given my life to God. But I do want to give my life to God. I do want the kingdom of heaven. I want to ask you, you know, just be bold. Raise your hand. I would love to pray with you. If there's anyone here who's never really done that. Amen. There are a few here. There are a few here who have said that. If you're online and you're watching this, the same call goes out to you. Will you give yourself to the kingdom of God today? If you raised your hand, I implore you, please come up afterwards. We have a gift for you. We'd love to give you a Bible. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to walk with you. We'd love to help you get going on your next steps. But that being said, I'll finally land this plane. You guys have hung in there with me so long. God, um, well, let me first, I want to invite all the prayer people to come up. And as those people are coming up, let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have the most amazing vision for this world. I thank you, God, that you have not given up on the world when we have broken it. That your goal is not to just beam us out of the earth. God, your goal is to restore this whole creation because you truly care about this kingdom. God, I ask that you would fill each one of us today with your spirit, that you would empower us to no longer be living for ourselves, that you would fill us with a hunger and a desperation to see your kingdom built. God, I pray that you would break off from us a loyalty to the American dream alone and cause us to begin to hunger and to thirst for nothing but Jesus and for building his kingdom. God, I pray that you would transform us here at Neighborhood Church and fill us with your spirit, set us on fire, make us a church that truly is shining for you in this city. God, I pray that you would make us different today, that you would wake us up, that you would shake us out of any lethargy, God, that you would keep our eyes fixed on your son and that we would walk in power and courage and healing and love above all things. God, would you give us the more grace, grace upon grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, you guys. Love your neighbor today. We'll see you next week.